when one commits, or as our team has committed, as our church is committed, to dealing with, with whole books of the Bible and going through those books verse by verse, there is, an, there is a, there's a consequence that arises, and it's a good consequence that arises from that. What it means is we don't get to cherry pick the eight or ten things we're most comfortable talking about and, and kind of ride those into the ground. The things that we deal with uh, in, our, in our discourse in here, in our Sunday morning teaching, we, we come to them in the text and so we deal with them. Uh, there have been innumerable times where uh, any one of us have said, wow, I don't know that this is a, a paragraph that I would choose to deal with. I don't know that this is the topic that I'm mm, at ease with. Well, this morning, we come to a, a fascinating section in your Bible. The range of verses from 753, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53, through 811, in your printed Bible, if you're holding one, or in your software, if your software has a place for annotations, is treated a bit differently. In your printed Bible, it's probably in brackets. There's probably a fascinating footnote that says something about manuscripts and this passage. We're going to have a look at that and why that matters. This morning, more so than teaching the Bible, which is what I most love doing, I'm teaching about the Bible. I believe that an honest reckoning with this passage calls for that. And I praise God for a congregation that, that has shown a track record of turning the face toward difficult and complex matters instead of turning the face away from them. This could be seen as a difficult and complex matter, though I hope I can, I can make it more accessible to you. Your New Testament is a miraculous book. But the origin of your New Testament is not magical. What do I mean? Well, if we were Mormon, the origin story of the Book of Mormon is a magical story. Where Joseph, Wood, Joseph Smith is wandering about in the woods one night, and an angel by the name of Moroni, that's moron with an eye. I notice things. Um, Moroni appears to Joseph Smith and hands him a stack of golden plates. Now, a couple of things. None of, this, none of these golden plates have survived. We don't know where they went. Imagine that. Inscribed on these plates in a language called Reformed Egyptian Hieroglyphics, a language which doesn't exist. No Egyptologist has ever seen it. There's no academic record of it. It doesn't exist. But in these reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics are inscribed the text of the Book of Mormon. Well, since the language doesn't exist, Joey couldn't translate it, so the angel also gave him a pair of magic translating glasses. And, which, by the way, we also no longer have. And with the magic translating glasses we don't have, 
He translated the language that doesn't exist off the golden plates we don't have, and voila, the text of the Book of Mormon. Magic. Your New Testament comes to you. We know that it's not originally in English, so you have translation done on underlying Greek text. That Greek text, we, we know we do not have the original manuscripts. The first century book of Galatians in the handwriting of the apostle Paul, we don't have. If we did, we would make such an awful idol of it. God has done us a merciful thing that those original manuscripts don't exist. But what does exist, beginning very early in the second century, handwritten copies. More than 5,800 handwritten manuscripts discovered by archaeologists from basically the whole Mediterranean basin. As far around as Italy, Greece, Turkey, the Middle East, Egypt, 5,800 manuscripts discovered archaeologically over centuries up to and including some significant discoveries in the 20th century. And those manuscripts meticulously analyzed, compared, in a language known as Koine or Common Greek, well known to be the most, the most common language of that age of the Roman Empire. The official language of the government was Latin, but the language of the people on the street was Koine Greek. The largest distribution of a single technical language in mankind's history. And God delivered his New Testament right into that marvelous, well-known language. And the, the, the work of taking those 5,800 manuscripts and comparing them, the spectacular level of agreement the places in your New Testament where hundreds of handwritten manuscripts written over decades if not centuries in various parts of the Mediterranean world agree letter for letter, letter for letter as, as the church coming out of the first century in the lifetime of the apostles began to copy and distribute the 27 books that God the Holy Spirit had laid his hand on. And the churches treasured their handwritten copies and passed them around. And there emerged your New Testament from that process. Miraculous. Not overtly magical like magic translating glasses and non-existent languages. This morning is pretty academic, but what I want you to take away from this morning, if, 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 if I could pray and have prayed that there would be a takeaway for you, is that you would come away from this morning with a more deep appreciation of the preserving, transmitting work that God the Holy Spirit has done. It's the most well-attested book of ancient literature in existence. We've got, there aren't 5,800 copies of anything Plato wrote, handwritten copies of Socrates, Aristotle, or anything else from these early days, but your Bible. I wanna, I wanna show you some of what some of these manuscripts look like. 
The first one that I want to I show you that's on the screen right now, this is an open leaf from a, a manuscript that is actually bound in the form of a book. I've, I've given you the name of it there in your notes, and you can do an internet search and read a great deal about this very famous manuscript. The Codex, and Codex simply means it is book form. It was never a scroll. It was never a single sheet. It is bound in the form of a book. It's called the Codex Sinaiticus because it was found in the 1700s in a monastery on the slopes of Mount Sinai. It is dated. <clears throat> These manuscripts are dated by things like how was the papyrus manufactured? Because through the centuries there have been different methods. What is the chemical composition of the ink because at different times, different inks were made different ways. What is the style of handwriting? Because down the century, handwriting styles evolve. I don't know if you've ever seen, for example, a, a literal 1611 King James. As a modern English reader, you can barely read it. Almost every letter is written differently because 400 years ago, English was written and printed differently than it is today. So by handwriting style and ink composition and construction of material, and in this case, the very fact that it's bound in a book which did not become common practice until the, the, the third or fourth century. Codex Sinaiticus is dated by most scholars to give or take AD 350. The year 350. It is a complete 27-book New Testament. It was more than a 1,000 years old when Columbus set foot in the New World. God had, by that time, captured and preserved the 27 books, the text of the 27 books. Three, it's a miraculous thing. It's on display. If you ever get a chance to go to London, it is on display at the British Museum Library. I have, I count it as one of the great privileges of my life to have stood and, and trembled knowing what this is and what it represents at this, this particular manuscript. It is, in my view, you can have the crown jewels. They are hunks of crystalline carbon. And they're pretty and they do light, really nice things when you hit them with bright light. But the most valuable object to be seen in the city of London is this, the Sinaiticus manuscript. See it if you ever get the chance. Another family of manuscripts, some manuscripts are whole books. Loose papyri that were, that were, that were found as loose pages are cataloged with the lowercase p and a number. Thus, this is P66. P66 is an intact copy of the Gospel of John. It dates from about the 200s, the AD 200s, about 150 years earlier than the Sinaiticus that I just showed you. It was discovered in 1952. It is now held in the Bodmer Museum near Geneva, Switzerland. Breathtaking. Not that many generations removed from that which John himself would have handwritten. It's a remarkable, remarkable find. Then I want to show you some manuscripts are very, very tiny. They're actually called fragments. The next one I want to show you is called P52. 
Papyrus 52. Now, you look right away and you'll see, well, that looks like two things that are mirror image. That's because you're seeing a picture of both the, the front and the back. The earlier back you go in history, papyrus is, is hard to make and extraordinarily valuable. Often, pieces of papyrus were, were, were rinsed and erased and reused, bleached and reused. Papyrus, of course, made by hammering out papyrus reeds and, and weaving them together. It's not paper, it's a predecessor to paper. But the papyrus here, P52, is written on both sides. So what you have there are pictures of both sides. On the, on the front side, there's a small part of John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. The words can be lined up with, with what a page of writing would look like and overlaid and lined up and behold those words, John 18, 31, 32, on the front side. On the back side, John 18, 37 and 38. So somewhere back there, someone had John 18. The remarkable thing about P52 is it dates from the early 100s. Perhaps copied by somebody one or two generations away from the original handwritten by John, Gospel of John. It's possible even someone who was discipled by John himself could have been involved in the production of this manuscript. It's on display now in Manchester, England, and it is generally regarded, that little scrap, as the single oldest manuscript piece of anything we have in the New Testament. More than 5,800 handwritten fragments from what is now Italy, Greece, Turkey, Jordan, Syria, Israel, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, all in remarkable agreement. Sometimes a word spelled differently. Sometimes two words swapped in their order in a way that doesn't affect the meaning of the sentence. God preserved that for you down the centuries to end up translated into the Bible you're carrying with you. And in our lifetime, we go from paper now to electronic digital transmission of God's word that allows for more rapid study and more rapid movement. Can you imagine carrying these manuscripts about versus now on a thumb drive? No problem. It's amazing what God has done. There are, however, hmm, well, oh, this process, this meticulous analyzing, comparing from archeology, archeological work to translation has been God's means to deliver our New Testament to us. The Old Testament has a, a different sort of, of history and I'm gonna deal with that and, and, and be on the notes this week. So if you subscribe to our podcast, catch Beyond the Notes this week, the story's a little bit different with how the Old Testament comes to us. Uh, but the New Testament, as I've explained, the difficulty presented by the passage in John 7:53 through 8:11, well, there, there is reason to believe, I believe, acceptable reason to believe, that it is not a part of John's gospel. 
The footnote in your Bible says something akin to that, though it may not draw the conclusion. It is certainly debatable. And and yes, you could email me 20 web links that take the position differently than the one that I'm taking because it's debatable. I didn't say it wasn't. But I do not believe this passage to be a part of the Gospel of John. I do not, it's a a well-beloved account. But I am unable to teach that account with thus saith the Lord confidence. So I owe you an explanation, which is what I'm trying to make. And in the course of that, tell you the truth about where your New Testament came from and the miraculous story of the preservation and transmission of your New Testament. But I want to share with you three reasons, from least compelling to what I believe is most compelling, why we, we should, we should um, perhaps consider that this story, this account, uh, is not a part of the Gospel of John and thus perhaps not a part of the Word of God. The first and least compelling it, it seems to be displaced. What do I mean? And I t- this is subjective. If you look at, at the account that ends in 752 and pick up right again at 812, there's a flow of thought. There's a flow of narrative. There's a flow in the text. This story seems to have been dropped into the text in a way that, that doesn't, fit well. In fact, some manuscripts where it does occur, and I'll talk about manuscripts where it does occur in a moment, place it at the end of John's gospel, like it's some sort of add-on story. A few manuscripts even place it in the gospel of Luke at various places. There seems to be some feeling that it is questionable as to where it might belong. But that's very, very subjective. You might read and say, well, no, it fits perfectly well. Second, and perhaps a little bit more compelling, is the vocabulary within this paragraph. If you had written me 100 letters, signed them, and I knew they were from you, and you wrote, uh, it's somewhere a 101st letter, unsigned, but claiming to be from you, turned up. By the time you write me 100 letters, I know what words you use. I know your favorite verbs. I know the, the nouns you tend to choose, the adjectives you like. And if that 101st letter uses a bunch of words that are not words I've ever seen in your writing before, I might have cause to wonder at the genuineness of that letter. There are 14 words, there are just over 80 total words in the Greek text of this set of verses. 14 of them are words that John does not use anywhere else. The easiest one to spot is the reference to scribes and Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 3. Though that term, scribes and Pharisees, is very common in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Outside that verse, nowhere in the writing of John does the word scribe appear. John never uses that term to describe the Jewish leadership. He has plentiful opportunity to. It's just not the term he uses. 
only here. There are 13 other such examples in this paragraph. I think, I think that might matter. And then, and then the third reason, the one that I think is, is perhaps most compelling and why I gave you so much context about manuscripts and such. There are no manuscripts before the late 400s that include this story. We have multiple manuscripts of the Gospel of John, including Sinaiticus and P66, both of which have John in its entirety. They don't have this paragraph. It pops up somewhere in the fifth century, not before. Brother Russell, you're just a liberal attacking the Bible. No, I'm a conservative that considers something from the fifth century to be too new. Fifth century is way too new. I want us to drive back to the first century and get at what God said through the pen of the Apostle John, not a marvelous story that appears to have been added in the fifth century. Perhaps from oral tradition, perhaps, well, who knows what its origin is, but its origin does not align with the antiquity of the rest of the Gospel of John. And for me, that's pretty compelling. Brother Russell, I'm going to leave here today trusting my Bible less than I have failed. Because what I want you to understand, as you look at your Bible with the brackets and footnotes, one person showed me after the first service in his Bible, this whole story is in italics with a footnote. What I want you to see is, <laughs> your New Testament doesn't have much of that. Your New Testament has book after book, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, where 5,800 manuscripts hand copied over centuries from a vast geographical area agree letter for letter that God would place in your hand a reliable New Testament. This paragraph, and there's, there's one other, I won't tease you with that, it's the the, the so-called long or extended ending of the Gospel of Mark. And you can look in your own Bible and you'll see similar footnotes. We're not teaching through Mark right now. We're teaching through uh, John. Now, all of that being said, that hard question, does this belong? I pray that I've addressed it kindly, clearly, truthfully. There are also, however, some great reminders within this passage. By the way, I've given you a couple of resources on if you've got the printed outline or if you're looking at the outline online. That big awkward link is to a magazine or a, 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 a journal article with a long title that talks through how this passage should be handled publicly. Um, I did, had not read that article until I got way deep into my own study, but I found it helpful. The second link I've given you there on the resources is Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary Library, which has links to many, many resources regarding the study of the New Testament texts and manuscripts. It is fascinating, fascinating stuff if you're bent that way. All right, this, this paragraph, this story, contains no heresy. There's nothing in here that says, well, this is so inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. No, not at all. There's no heresy here. And, and it is consistent with, with what 
we know about the character of Jesus. In fact, there are three specific reminders, lessons that I think we can, we can see as reminders in this text. First, we see in this text that self-righteousness hates grace. These, these Pharisees and scribes in this text that, that take the woman taken in adultery and throw her at Jesus' feet and you know, demand that he implicate himself one way or the other by either affirming or not affirming that she be stoned. What we see in there is that self-righteousness hates grace. In Philippians 3.18, Paul calls self-righteous people enemies of the cross. See, my self-righteousness, my getting to God by my obedience and my good behavior will always stand in the way of my crying out to my Savior in repentance and faith and following Jesus. We are reminded by this little tale that self-righteousness hates grace. We also are reminded, albeit in a backhanded way, that there is a duty, but there also is a correct way for the church to redemptively call out and deal with open sin. Galatians 6.1 encourages us that if anyone is overtaken in a fault, those of you who are spiritual, that is those of you who are walking with God, should restore such a one, but in a spirit of gentleness. Jesus spelled out in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, the four steps of dealing with somebody who is in open, unrepented of sin. Go to them one-on-one -on -one in love and call them out. And if they won't listen to you, Take a couple of mutually trusted friends and go to them and say, there's something in your life that is off track. And if they won't listen over time with prayer, with burden, with tears, tell it to the church that the pressure of the body of Christ as a whole would be brought to bear and say, we love you, we care about you, we have heard and believed your profession of faith, but this open, unrepented of sin must be addressed. And, even, and if even that is not successful in the person being called back to repentance, at that point they are to be dismissed from the church and treated as an outsider. Does that mean we treat them mean? No, it means we treat them as somebody who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would turn from their sin and walk by faith. Certainly not what's done in this passage, but the negative reminder of this passage is a strong one. And then third, we are reminded in the, in the, in the punchline of this, of this story, when Jesus encourages the woman, having, having her accusers having been sent away, Jesus encourages the woman to go and sin no more. That is a reminder of the transformational character of the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And the old things have passed away and new things have come. The gospel that you have believed has left you untransformed. You haven't believed the gospel. Because God the Holy Spirit comes in, takes residence, and begins to rewire from the inside out anyone who turns from their sin and trusts Jesus. Well, in the car this morning as you go, or in your life group at 11, you're going to say to one another, that was the weirdest Sunday morning message I've ever heard in my life. We deal with truth. And the miraculous story of how the New Testament came to your hand is too good to not tell and too good not to tell truthfully. 
And this passage needs this context. Thank Jesus for his preservation of his miraculous word. Some say this story may be a very real, very true story that somehow came through four or five hundred years of oral transmission before a copyist picked it up and stapled it in the Gospel of John. That's altogether possible that it's true. Brother Russell, how can you know it's not true? Well, it's very hard to know something is not true. So even as we question this one paragraph, as the editors of your printed Bible have already guided you to do, know that you have a spectacularly trustworthy New Testament where God has miraculously preserved down the millennia the texts of these 27 books that were accepted by actually the second century as God's word to his New Testament people.